Welcome to The Sacramentalists, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Father Creighton McElveen. And unfortunately, Father Miles Hickson is unable to join us today. I know he was looking forward to this discussion, but he has sick children and apparently he also is not feeling very well. So he is taking the day off. Well, I think he's earned it. Um, But today we're very excited to be joined by Dr. Michael Gorman, who is the Raymond E. Brown Chair in Biblical Studies and Theology at St. Mary's Seminary and University in Baltimore, Maryland. He's written a number of important works that hopefully you've read, including Participating in Christ, Exploration in Paul's Theology and Spirituality, Inhabiting the Cruciform God, Kenosis, Justification, and Theosis in Paul's Narrative Soteriology, and Apostle of the Crucified Lord, a theological introduction to Paul and his letters. And now we can call him a recurring guest because this is the second time uh, he's been on the podcast. Um, Dr. Gorman, thank you for joining us today. Welcome. It's good to see you. Thank you so much for having me, Father Wesley and Father. Yeah, it's it's just great to be here. And I think um, our previous conversation, I don't remember that Father Creighton was with us, but that, I, have a, I have an aging memory, so I'm not sure. He was not with us. It was just me and you the last time. So I'm glad Father Creighton gets to join us. And of course, we're here today to talk about a um, commentary that you've recently written uh, called Romans, a theological and pastoral uh, commentary. Um, It's a really, really wonderful uh, resource uh, published by Erdman's. Um, In fact, Erdman's actually sent us an extra copy. So um, listeners, if you pay attention to our social media around this time, uh, the time this drops, uh, you'll find uh, a way to enter a contest to win a copy of Dr. Gorman's uh, commentary. And after hearing him talk about it, you will definitely want to uh, want to get a copy. So um, anyway, so Dr. Gorman, let's talk a little bit about you uh, before we uh, jump into the actual book of Romans. What got you interested in studying the apostle? I think a lot of it had to do with my own coming to faith, which was, I mean, I don't want to compare it to what happened to Paul on the Damascus Road, but there was some similarities. I had very little to no interest in the Christian faith, even though I had been sort of raised in the church, if you will, um, was certainly not living any kind of a, a Christian life. And um something dramatic happened to me. And uh, as a result, I, I, I began to identify not only with Paul's experience, but with some of his really core um, principles or writings or whatever. I, I still have a copy of my first Bible given to me as a new believer. It was the Good News New Testament. And one of the, one of the uh, phrases that I highlighted, which has now come to mean a lot in my adult years, um, was the phrase from Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, so I'm, the, the idea of transformation and participation goes back to my earliest days as a Christian believer. So I think that's what got me interested in Paul. To be honest with you, though, in graduate school, I had some really good experiences of, of uh, courses in Pauline theology and also some really good experiences in gospel studies. So choosing between those two and and being a teaching assistant for the great um, Bruce Medsker on the book of Revelation, as well as on other New Testament writings. It, it was a difficult choice, but at, at the end of the day, I was really interested in Paul's, um, his ethics and his Christology. And of course, you've written books on John's gospel and on Revelation that are all worth reading. So um, yeah, we should definitely plug those as well. We can put well, all those in the, yeah. in the listeners notes because they're excellent. Um, well, that's all. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Dr. Gorman, um, it, one of the themes that sort of comes up is is the idea of sort of narrative soteriology. Um, so one of the questions we have for you is, is what story is St. Paul telling us in the book of Romans? Because I think that's pretty operative for how we understand the text as a whole. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I, I think it's important to say that one way not to read Romans is to kind of cherry pick a few verses here and there and create a story from those verses. And that that often, it probably doesn't happen in Anglican circles, but it happens in a lot of other circles. You, uh, you end up with a story that's sometimes called the Roman road or the Romans road, you know, so you all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and, and uh, then a verse about, you know, Christ died for us, or some version of that from Romans. And then um, 
you, know, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and that you, you will be saved. And that, that kind of sort of a sequence of very individualistic, um, shall we say, um, uh, non-contextual, uncontextualized use of, of certain phrases in Romans. And it's the easiest thing to do is just read Romans from beginning to end instead of cherry picking and see what Paul is up to. And I think if we do that, we see him announce the story he's going to tell in the beginning of the letter. We see that story unfold, which is a story of God's saving righteousness or justice for all people, Gentile and Jew, um, God's mercy, God's uh, faithfulness, and see that how that um, addresses the brokenness of humanity, which is described in the first couple of chapters. And then we see that described in, in, in its consequences um, in the middle of the letter and, and its consequences for the people of Israel there in chapters 9 to 11. I still remember from years ago seeing a, a Bible study guide which um, said, when we read Romans, there's no reason to read Romans 9 to 11 because that was for then and has nothing to do with the current situation or the current church. So we'll just skip from chapter 8 to chapter 12, which, of course, is part of Paul's story is God's faithfulness to Israel. And that's what chapters 9 to 11 is all about. But then, of course, it plays out in, in the way the church, not just individuals, but the church as a community is supposed to live as this kind of multicultural community that brings together differing people who traditionally have not been on the same page theologically or politically or whatever, um, the Gentiles and, and, and Jews in Rome. So um, that, that to me is the story of Romans, and it, it can be summed up in a word like God's saving righteousness or God's saving justice or the gospel uh, in, in this big, big picture way rather than very individualistic. And actually, that kind of bleeds into one other sort of meta question that we should probably talk about before we jump into the book. And that is um, that is the word justification, um, because, of course, after the Reformation, justification has become reduced by a lot of theologians to mean sort of a purely legal pronouncement that one is righteous or forgiven. Um, that's not how you treat justification in your work. Um, so what do you think Paul means when he uses the word justification, especially in the book of Romans? Well, I decided I should go back and look at what I actually say in the commentary when you told me you might ask that question. And I was kind of shocked, to be honest with you, to see that according to the PDF search, that word appears 322 times in the commentary, which is pretty amazing. That's not even the word just or, or justified or whatever. But um, I think what I'm arguing against throughout my work, and, and particularly in this commentary on Romans, is the idea that justification is simply God's, and narrowly understood God's declaration that sinners are now acquitted or, or forgiven for their sin. I don't want to discount that as part of justification, but it's only part of justification. And as I read Romans, justification is a very complex, multifaceted reality that includes um, aspects of both of, of um, participating in the death and resurrection of Christ and therefore being transformed as we enter into this new or restored relationship with God. So. In, in a number of places, I've defined justification as the restoration of right covenantal relations with God. But that happens by virtue of participating in the death and resurrection of, of Jesus. Um, and, and therefore, since in that death and resurrection, God's righteousness or God's justice is, is on display, when we share in the death and resurrection of Jesus and we are transferred into this reality that's called Christ slash the church, when we when we become involved, if you will, um, to quote Ellen Davis on her in her little book, Getting Involved with God, which is on the Old Testament, when we get involved with God in this um, in this new way through the death and resurrection of Christ, we we are transformed. So we don't just we're not just called righteous, we become righteous. Uh, we're not just counted just we are made just. And I think Paul makes this clear 
in a variety of ways. And, and maybe we'll get to this later, but one of the major, from my point of view, one of the major contributions of this commentary on the topic of justification is its connection to life. I think Paul makes that point in Romans 5, but he really makes that point in Romans 4 when we read the story of Abraham. Um, so I just want to expand our understanding of justification out of its narrow confines it's often placed in. One quick follow-up to that. Sure. In these discussions, typically what you'll hear, at least from, from someone maybe who leans a little more reformed, where justification is purely a, a legal declaration, uh -huh. is they'll have a separate category of sanctification to describe the sort of actually becoming righteous of the person. Right. Um, would you would you distinguish between those two terms at all, or, or are they kind of describing the same thing maybe from different angles, or, or how would you kind of parse those words? Well, it's interesting that Paul, in, and this isn't Romans, but in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, all in one breath. That seems to suggest that he does not see them as sequential, but as, as different ways of looking at this initial reality, washed from our sin, set apart for God's purposes, and made part of God's just righteous people. On the other hand, uh, in Romans 8, we do have something that seems a little bit more sequential, but, but I would argue that he, you know, the, the, the so-called order of salvation um, I, I would argue there that again, Paul is is describing various facets of this of this relationship, of this um, act of God that creates the relationship. So, what what worries me about the traditional reformed perspective that justification is followed by sanctification is followed by glorification is not that they're erroneously stated that way, but that sequencing them and dividing them does the opposite, I think, of what Paul wants to intend is that there's a kind of a seamless garment here. And, and if you make justification as its own reality, you, and you cut that off from sanctification, you could lead down the path, which I think sometimes happens, that sanctification is a, is a corollary, but no, it's not a corollary, it's an optional supplement to the, to the real McCoy, which is justification. So I think the Orthodox get it right. If we like, if we use uh, now, introduce my, you know, my difficult term. If we use the language of deification or theosis, it's it's a it's a non-separable reality from rebirth to to immortal bodily uh, transformation. Anyhow, I I've always um, in in Bible studies or classes, try to emphasize it's it's transformational, not transactional. Mm -hmm. That's that, a great a great line. Can I can I steal that from you, Father Creighton? Absolutely, please steal with, it with uh, credit, of course. <laughs> please steal it. Um, yeah. But and, I think that that kind of gets to the heart of it, right? It kind of it points at what yeah. you're talking about. I, and I think though, um, I've just read the manuscript of a forthcoming book, which will on justification, which is very interesting. And if I think this, the argument that there is a legal dimension, if you will, to uh, the, the image of, trans, of, of justification, I don't want to eliminate that. But what's interesting in this argument, and several other people have argued similarly, um, we've, we've, we've imposed our own sort of understanding of, of a legal pronouncement from the 20th or 21st century on ancient realities. And in that reality, um, it's not simply a, a non-consequential, non, non non-transformational verdict. Thank you for that insight. No, I, I, I think this, this is the kind of thing when we talk about Romans that makes me excited. So I, 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 this, is, this is kind of the aspect that gets me, gets me jazzed. Um, but in the so in the, in the opening chapter, Saint Paul sort of you know gives us his thesis um, for for the book itself uh, in verses sixteen and seventeen. Uh, can you explain what that thesis is? I mean, we've kind of talked about it, but can you kind of give it to us? Um, yeah. Well, I think I think it, it, we need to connect it also to the first few verses where 
Paul says this gospel is is basically the continuation of God's work narrated in the in the scriptures of Israel. So what does that mean? We need to connect what God has done in Christ to what God has been doing through Israel's history. And that is described in, in Paul's language in a word like uh, soteria, salvation, or or righteousness, the righteousness of God. So uh, in, in some reformed and other circles, that's sometimes interpreted as an alien outside, if you will, imputed gift or whatever. But the use of that throughout scripture, that term, the righteousness of God, really refers to God's saving activity. And so I think what we see in Romans uh, 1, 16 to 17, in connection to Romans 1, um, 3 and 4, is that what God has done in Christ is to um, act for the salvation of all, uh, namely Gentile and Jew, and to uh, do that in a way that is a display of God's own faithfulness to Israel and implicitly to the world. Um, that is displayed or manifested in Christ's own faithfulness to death on the cross. And um, the purpose of that is to generate a response of faithfulness among human beings. This is, this is God's plan, if you will, to create a faithful covenant people. Uh, the new covenant, even though Paul doesn't use that language, is pretty clearly what he was referring to there. But it, it is a continuation of God's activity in the past. So um, I've, I've obviously that engaged right in that as few words and a lot of interpretation of, of key words. I mean, I, I sometimes refer to 1, 16 and 17 as Paul's mini lexicon. I mean, every important word is there, faith or faithfulness, righteousness, um, gospel, salvation, power, uh, the power of God for, for this transformation that you were talking about, Father Creighton. So, um, yeah, there's a lot in those two verses for sure. Now, after he kind of introduces the thesis of the book, he goes on to sort of condemn first the Gentiles and then his Jewish listeners. Um, and you pick up really interestingly on some of the Old Testament uh, precedents for that. Like I think you mentioned the prophet Amos, mm -hmm. um, who gives the seven woe speeches and then he tacks on an eighth for his uh, his own native listeners. Um, which I think is really interesting and helpful. Um, so kind of at the end of, of chapter two and going into chapter three, uh, there's, you know, no one can sort of stand up to judgment in, in front of God. Um, but it's also in chapter three where we're first introduced to God's mercy in the form of justification. And here you describe justification as both vertical and horizontal. So what is what does that mean exactly when we when we think about the dimensions of justification? Yeah. Well, that kind of language, of course, is metaphorical, but it's, it's meant to, to symbolize something very important. We often think of justification as simply, if you will, put it colloquially, me getting right with, with God, right? So take, taking my sin away so that I'm in restored to a right relationship with God. Um, what the new perspective on Paul has offered us, however, is that Justification is not simply about the individual's relationship with God, but also about the um, individual being, and especially the Gentiles, being included in the people of God. So if you will, and I, I think this is a false, kind of a false dichotomy, if you will, a soteriological and an ecclesial dimension to justification. So that's, I think, one part of it. When we're justified, we're not just now in a me and Jesus relationship. We are, we are brought into the people of God. But also, I think it's pretty clear from, from what Paul is doing with, with salvation and justification language is that he is saying that there's not, if we're broken as human beings, and as I, the language I use is covenantally dysfunctional, that has to do with our relationship with God, but also with one another. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, right? The two great commandments. That's what we break. And so justification is the restoration of right covenantal relations. That it means not only with God, but with one another. So for me, vertical and horizontal has those two kinds of um, aspects to it. We are not just in right, right relationship with God, we're brought into the community, but also our, our, our justification means now we, we live in relationship to God in, in better ways, more 
covenantally appropriate ways, and we live and are called to live with one another um, so that ultimately justification leads to justice. And, and that's another kind of uh, important part of, of my interpretation of Paul and, and of Romans in this commentary. Hope that helps. Absolutely does. Um, and we, we, we sort of mentioned this a little bit earlier with the relationship to Israel, but in, in chapter four, St. Paul kind of directs the story towards Abraham. Uh, so what does Paul use, uh, what does Paul's use of the Abraham story really kind of teach us about how he understands justification and his thesis? Yeah, that's a great question. And the interesting thing is, I think that most people stop reading Romans 4 in a serious way somewhere toward the middle, a little bit past the, the middle. And in that first part, we get a kind of confirmation of the thesis that justification is by grace through faith. Um, it's not by works. And Paul uses an economic metaphor there. Um, it's for all people, even for the ungodly, because interestingly, Abraham is is basically classified among the ungodly. It's for the circumcised as well as the uncircumcised. Abraham functions, as, as I say in the commentary, as a kind of um, uh, man or person for all seasons. He's got he's got all these different dimensions. He's the he's the consummate Jew, but he's also kind of portrayed here as a consummate proselyte. He's the uncircumcised one. So it opens up justification and, and participation in, in the life of God um, to the Gentiles. But then you keep reading, and it's that life theme that really reappears dramatically in the second half of Romans 4, where we are seeing Abraham and Sarah portrayed as essentially dead. And with the birth of Isaac, with the birth of this child, they now have life because they will, in a sense, live eternally through their 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 son and their and their children. So, Paul, I think, there is portraying justification as a death and resurrection experience. He goes on to say at the end of the uh, uh, at the end of that chapter, precisely that that that, that the death and resurrection of Jesus are are part of and necessary for our our justification. Um, so I, I don't want to discount anything that's normally said about Abraham and justification by grace through faith for Gentiles, uncircumcised, etc. But I want to really emphasize the, the portrayal of justification as new life, as a resurrection from the dead, which is part of that transformation we've been talking about. I really like especially the idea of with Abraham, and this being a resurrectional sort of reality, the idea of the son of promise and Christ being the son mm. who is promised. And it is in the life, death and resurrection of Christ that we are brought into that right relationship. And it's foreshadowed for us in Abraham. I think that's a really interesting yeah. sort of yeah. Yeah, dynamic. It's a great chapter. I, I, I think I probably had more fun in some respects working on well, it was one of the chapters I had the most fun working on in the commentary writing process. Commentary writing is a process and you have to, you know, it's it's not just a, a mechanical or scientific thing. There's an, there's an art to, uh, to writing a commentary. From start to finish, how long did this take you to write? That's an interesting question, uh, Father Wesley, because this commentary is an expansion of two, actually three previous short mini commentaries that I've written on Romans in my uh, textbook, Apostle of the Crucified Lord, first edition 2004, second edition 2017. I wrote the Romans commentary for the study Bible and the Common English Bible study Bible. So um, if you if you ask me the question, when did I start writing a commentary on Romans and, and say, how did it lead to this? 20 years. Uh, but the intense writing on this form was somewhere between about six and 12 months. But, but that's after 20 years of previous commentary writing and a series of articles on Romans too. So just in, in some ways, pulling all that together, expanding it, um, was a pretty intense process. 
So one one area that's kind of always interesting in in your writings is the relationship between faith in the believer and baptism. Mm-hmm. Um, how how do you kind of see those two acts in relationship? I mean, are these two separate but related acts, or are they just two sides of the same coin? Um, is there a sequential order of significance? First, you're baptized, and then you have faith, or first you have faith, and then you're baptized. Or, or how, how do we understand kind of how those two things work together? Yeah. Let me answer a sort of theological perspective first and then talk about, the, the therefore, the, the chronology, if you will. I do think there are two sides of the same coin, and the, and the coin is transfer into Christ. That language was... Um, popularized rightly by E.P. E. Sanders in his you know, monumental book, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, back in the late 70s, um, that, that when we have faith or, and when we are baptized, we are transferred into Christ, both, if you will, mystically as I, and, and corporately in this you know, new reality of the people of God. And some years ago, when I was writing Inhabiting the Cruciform God, or actually when I was writing a, uh, a paper, prior to that book, so in, in maybe 2005, 2006 timeframe, I did a, a really careful comparison between Galatians 2 and Romans 6. And Galatians 2 about justification, Romans 6 about baptism. The only two places where Paul uses a language of I have been crucified with Christ, or we have been crucified with Christ, or you have been crucified with Christ. That language is only in those two places. And um, so essentially the argument of the commentary is based on the argument of these previous essays and papers is that we find in both Galatians 2 and Romans 6 almost identical language for what happens when we when we believe we believe into Christ Paul says in in Galatians 2:16 using the preposition Greek preposition into ace we have faith into Christ that moves us into Christ. We are baptized into Christ. We die and rise with Christ. All So all these same, same, if you will, characteristics are predicated both of faith and of baptism. So this is the experience of coming from outside Christ, moving into Christ. And um, I think in the early church, it was assumed that when you came to faith, you would be baptized pretty much immediately. I, I don't mean necessarily in the same hour, but probably probably soon thereafter. Maybe the same day, maybe the same week. I, I don't know. That, that's We don't have exact evidence for that. But certainly there was not a two-year catechetical period. Uh, and, and so, you know, in Romans 10, Paul says, and you, you believe in the heart and you confess with the lips. That seems to me to correspond to the, the same kind of reality that faith is an internal, if you will, um, response to the gospel that is displayed in the act of baptism and that together they, they constitute what is required to be counted part of this, this community. So. It would seem to me that faith would precede baptism. Of course, if you happen to baptize a household of children included, then maybe baptism precedes faith. But I, I'm not sure that Paul addresses that in explicitly. It may be implied in some places, but I don't, I don't know that as opposed to Acts. And yeah, so. did you have a? Did you have a counter response to that or did you see them? I mean, I'm not not necessarily. I mean, I think in in the story of Romans, that is probably that seems to be the most evident way of of putting all the data together. I, I think in lived experience, it's it's possible that there might be ways to tell that story in, in perhaps a different order. Um, you know, the child who's baptized uh, mm-hmm. into the church is, is baptized into the church. And, and as a result of that, perhaps receives faith. But, um, but certainly, I think that, I mean, in Paul's day and age, I'm sure he's writing to people who converted more than were born right. into the church. And so that would have been their lived experience in a way that for some of us in the church is not the case today. So um, right. I think there can be some flexibility as far as how we interpret that. Oh, but yeah. I think in, in Romans, I think that absolutely makes sense. 
Yeah, the, the first thing you need to do when when interpreting the biblical text is try as best you can to hear what what Paul is saying and why he's saying it or whatever writing. Then we need to reflect on that, interpret that in in light of changed situations, and 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 without without dispensing with that order, figuring out what it has to do when when it addresses something that Paul didn't have in mind. Yeah. No, I think thank you. I think that's sort of helpful, sort of trying to to wrap one's head around exactly how that those two realities relate to each other. Um, in you know we move from. Romans 6 to Romans 7, where St. Paul talks about life in the flesh. And we see this sort of struggle between good and evil playing out in the person. Um, speaking of lived experience, post-baptism, this is this is what happens, right? Right. Um, and in chapter 7, Paul uses the word I to refer to the one struggling. Um, but that's raised a few questions. Is he speaking about himself? before he converted or is he speaking of himself in the present is it someone else entirely like israel or adam how do we sort of parse that yeah the difficulty with that passage is most of us probably all of us identify so much with phrases like i don't do the good that i want to do and i do i do the things i know i shouldn't do or don't want to do um and and i i'm in that same boat i mean i'm i live that experience and yet i i think that paul is not in those passages or in that section of romans 7 describing christian believers so let me backtrack for a second the the some people will have heard of the book by Watchman Nee from years ago, the, the Normal Christian Life. And whether they've heard of him or not, I think this is how many people read Romans 5 through 8. We're justified. We're, um, you know, we're no longer in Adam. We're in Christ. We've been baptized. And yet suddenly we realize our own inadequacy and our own struggle with sin. And thank God we have the spirit. We have no condemnation in Christ, and we have the Spirit to to save us from this struggle that's described about the Christian believer in in chapter seven. But I think for Paul, the, the language of chapter six is so stark. You've died to sin; uh, no longer has sin uh, control over you. Sin no longer reigns over you. You now live to God, for God, not to sin. Uh, you're not enslaved to sin any longer. And then he comes back in chapter 7, and in and, and the I, that says, uh, I'm a slave to sin. It's not, it's not me doing this. It's sin living in me. And I have a very hard time thinking that Paul described the believer in chapter 6 in one way and almost antithetically in chapter 7. So... The way I read chapters five to eight is that five, the beginning of chapter five describes the reality of justification and reconciliation with God. Um, and then Paul proceeds to give us three different depictions of the old life and the new life. So life in Adam, life in Christ, condemnation, justification. Um, and then in Romans six, one to seven, six, uh, the the new way, uh, the old way rather, is life enslaved to sin. The new way is life enslaved to God and righteousness. And then in 7-7, seven, seven, basically chapter 7 and chapter 8, life in the flesh versus life in the spirit. Three sets of antitheses or, or opposite depiction, depictions of opposite ways of understanding the old life and the new life. If that's the case, then... The I in the second half of chapter seven has got to be someone other than the Christian believer. I tend to think it represents humanity as a whole, even though it has a very Jewish way of depicting that. Um, it's the predicament of humanity without the spirit. Paul's language of mutual indwelling is so powerful. Christ in us and us in Christ in chapter eight. And in chapter seven, it's just the opposite. 
sin in us and us under sin, uh, a kind of mutual indwelling of, of sin, capital S as a power. Um, now, two, two caveats on, on that explanation. One is I completely understand the identification as a Christian believer with that ongoing struggle. I completely, I, I wish it weren't, weren't that way, but it is um, for me and, and for almost everybody I know. Uh, so lots of scholars have said, even if we don't say chapter seven is deliberately depicting the Christian struggle, Christian individual struggle, can we not say that there's always, as Romans 8 says, the need to die to sin on an ongoing basis. And to the degree that we don't, we're going to experience uh, a reality similar to our pre-Christian existence that still needs to be overcome by the, by the work of the Spirit. So I don't say that in the commentary, and I kind of wish that I did. Um, yeah. And I guess the other thing to say is there's a number of people who are saying right now, let's not get so fixated on who the I is in chapter seven and figure and, and see that Paul is really dealing with the law. The law is the focus of the back half of chapter seven, and the I is not the focus. I'm not sure I agree with that, but that's one scholarly approach to the to the issue as well. So I've gone on at length about this, partly because it bothers me. It was the if Romans four was the fun part of commentary writing, Romans seven was not the fun part of it. I can understand that. <laughs> um, well, so you 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 do you know when you're sort of when you're explaining it, you mentioned sin, and, and I think that's um, you know an important thing to try to unpack. Uh, so how does Paul understand sin? I think there are two, two realities that Paul identifies as sin or something that we would call sin. The first is transgressions, sins, plural, small s, uh, realities or, or acts that transgress the law of God, that displease God, that um, break the covenant relationship with God and with one another. So the, the commandments when they're given and broken, that, that's sins or transgressions, sins, plural. But I think the, the real contribution Paul makes theologically to our understanding of sin is sin singular as a cosmic power, the, maybe the most potent uh, force in the universe other than um, than the power of God, if you will. It's not equal to the power of God. I don't want to sound Manichaean here, uh, but but a, a potent force like death, um, sin and death are kind of um, in cahoots uh, against the human race. And so sin is this power that from which we need to be liberated. And so to go back to the question of justification, we often understand justification as uh, forgiveness for sins, plural. But Paul's contribution is, yes, that's part of it, but justification and um, is also liberation from this power that Paul calls sin singular, um, that we were enslaved to, that was over us. Chapter 3, verse 9, I've now, as, as I've now basically argued, um, we are all under sin, under the power of sin. The um, one of the French translations says, under the empire of sin, it's my favorite translation of that verse. So we're, we're in the grips of this reality. And in one of the things Paul says in Romans 6 is we have now been um, justified from sin singular. What does that mean? It, it, it's only if justification can be understood as a, as a form of liberation. Um, uh, we have been liberated from this reality. Uh, and of course, the ongoing struggle is to to live live out of and live into that that liberation, and we all fall short. I'll be the first to admit it. What did you ask? <laughs> I love <I laughs> the question as I was ruminating on the answer. Um, oh, sin. Yeah. What is sin? So, yeah. 
it's it's transgression and it's power. So, Dr. Gorman, I first encountered your work in a class on Paul at Neshota House Seminary in Wisconsin, and we read your book, Inhabiting the Cruciform God, where you talk a lot about um, cruciformity, um, and I thought that was such an eye-opening book. It was it was really a beautiful, beautifully written um, book, a lot of meditation on Philippians 2. Um, and so cruciformity really takes the center stage there. Um, in your recent book, Participating in Christ, you introduced the term resurrectional cruciformity, and it seems like you're engaging with some scholars who maybe um, maybe not criticized, but offered a, a critique of of inhabiting the cruciform God and insofar as, well, where's the resurrection in all this? And yeah. so you say resurrectional cruciformity is kind of the way forward um, because you can't really have one without the other and um, right. and, and all that. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting section in participating in Christ when you kind of engage with those, those critiques. Um, that's a term that kind of reappears in Romans chapter eight. Um, so can you talk a little bit about why that term became necessary for you, resurrectional cruciformity, and how it works out in Romans chapter 8? Yeah. Um, the, the term cruciformity simply was my coinage for from the adjective cruciform, meaning cross-shaped, as a way of describing existence in Christ according to Paul, and I would say according to most of the New Testament. Um I did get pushed back. Uh, I mean, the the first the first the first wave of response to that term and to the book Cruciformity in two thousand one was either oh this is this is uh, restating the obvious or it is so um, insightful. So you got you got both of those kinds of uh, responses either stating the obvious, uh, restating the obvious, or oh wow this is so new and insightful. Okay, all right. But then the pushback began to occur with inhabiting the cruciform God, but also just in, in reaction to cruciformity in general, that it sounds so almost masochistic, um, even though I think I argued against that in, in both those books. Um, it, it leaves out the resurrection. So um, how, do you, how do you account for that? So what I, what I gravitated toward was the paradox that when we when we when we inhabit this cruciform God, when we live out the cross in daily life, paradoxically, it is life giving both for us and for those with whom we are in contact, with whom we minister or act and act, if you will. Um, I was just discussing this last, actually, in a Bible study last night. So uh, it's it's fresh. Uh, it's it's it is a paradox. It's I think for Paul the central paradox that there is resurrection power in the midst of cruciform existence. Second Corinthians three, four and five especially addresses that. But I think it comes up in Romans eight as well. So we're to die to our old way of life, we're to die to the flesh. And it's in that that we experience this newness of life that Paul speaks about throughout Romans. That term comes from Romans six. Um, and uh, that way of life of, I, I say in the commentary, there's two forms of cruciformity, one is dying to the flesh and dying to the old way of life. The other is, is, is suffering with Christ. Um, and that pivotal point in, in 817, where uh, we will be glorified with Christ if we uh, have suffered with Christ. So it, it seems to me that Paul is keeping together there this power of the resurrection, this new life in the spirit, um, it's it's life giving. It's life affirming. It is it is infused with the joy and and the power of the resurrection. And yet simultaneously, it takes on this this ongoing dying, uh, to include in, in some cases at least uh, actual suffering of, of various kinds. So, um, I know it's a clumsy term, resurrectional cruciformity, but I want to keep together the experience of death and resurrection dying and rising with christ is not a one-time experience to go back to an earlier question it's an ongoing experience it's an inseparable experience yeah i i love quick, that, quick, that sorry that yeah quick quick funny story on that i was invited to give a a, a lecture this fall um on 
basically on Paul and mission. And it's, I decided to do it on his missional spirituality. And so the title of the lecture is Resurrectional Cruciformity. And the people organizing the lecture, I think, had such a hard time with that title that they proposed five or six alternative titles because it was it sounds so awkward. But at the end of the day, they decided of all the titles they had proposed that my own original title was the best. So I won't reveal anything more than that right now. It'll come out in due course. So, I actually... I, I had to write a devotional at, for Neshota House for Advent a couple of years ago, and I I it was on a psalm, but I, it was a cruciform psalm, and so I mentioned you and cruciformity. And apparently, the editors who were putting together the book were not, you know, theologically educated, and and really were apparently befuddled by that word. Yeah, and I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, it gets even more befuddling when you add resurrectional in front of it. So. Oh well. You have to do what you have to do to try to make make sense of Paul <laughs> and me. Sorry, Father, uh, you look like you were leaning into a question there. No, uh, well, that I mean, yeah. to make sense of of Paul, that kind of leads us into the next question: um, Romans nine through eleven, um, which can be difficult to parse. Um, and so, it seems that Paul is, you know, grieved over the unbelief of his Jewish contemporaries. Um, but there does seem to be hope when he says that all Israel will be saved. Uh, in Romans 9, 6, he seems to make room for a more spiritualized understanding of Israel itself, because not everyone is biologically descended from Abraham or part of Israel in that way. Uh, so when he says that all Israel will be saved, do you think he's looking forward to an eschatological mass conversion of sorts, or is this an assurance that the church will be saved? So I think you're, yeah, if I hear your question rightly, is it, is the all Israel will be saved a reference in some respect to ethnic Israel or to spiritual Israel, meaning the church? Yeah, I, I, I part company here with my good friend, Tom Wright, um, because who, who takes the more, you know, spiritual uh, Israel approach or the, the Israel as the church, um, the new Israel, uh, to quote Galatians. Um, couple of thoughts. One is, I think from beginning to end of Romans, Paul is so clearly concerned about two entities, Israel and the nations, and he keeps them separate, even though God's salvation is for all. And he wants them to be joined together, but to maintain that distinction. The, the so-called uh, Paul within Judaism school has, I don't agree with it on a lot of points, but I think it's one of its focal points is making this really important for Paul. That is to say, the nations don't become Jewish and the Jews don't become the nations. They maintain their identity even in, in Christ. Um, and I think that's a theme in the letter. So when Paul in chapter two, for instance, talks about what's required, it's a circumcision of the heart, which obviously is echoing Deuteronomy and, De and Jeremiah. That's sort of the, the criterion for participation in this new reality. Um, and and in, in Romans 9, I would say, Paul is saying, as he does in, in Romans 11, there are some ethnic Jews in his time who because of their unfaithfulness or unbelief are no longer um, they've been broken off, right? They, and, and they need to, by faith, be, um, I want to say transplanted. That's the wrong word. Help me with the word. Uh, uh, anyhow, brought back in or, or um, reconnected, if you will, to, to, the, to the tree. Um, so I don't think that nine, the beginning of chapter 9 is so much saying there are uh, non uh, that, that there are Gentiles who are who are members. That's they're, yes, they're grafted in. Thank you, grafted is what I was looking for. But saying that not all Israelites have remained faithful, and therefore, as the chapter eleven says, they have been broken off and need to be grafted back in. 
So to me, Israel language in 9 to 11 is about ethnic Israel, not uh, the church or spiritual Israel. I could be wrong. I mean, Romans 7 was hard in a different way. Romans 9 to 11 is always difficult. Um, to me, the best line in my commentary on Romans 9 to 11 is, if there's any kind of double predestination in Paul, it's double predestination to mercy. That's, um, that is my favorite line in my discussion of chapters 9 to 11. And, and you know, I, I say at the end of the Romans 9 to 11 discussion, this is my best guess, my best effort at understanding these chapters, but uh, it's a mystery. And thank, thank goodness that uh, Paul ends on that kind of note of celebration of, of mystery and the mystery of mercy. And we need to, to maintain, I think, that humility as well. Yeah, that is, that is a very, very difficult passage. Yeah. Um, but thank you. That's, a, that's enlightening. Um, now, the final, so after Paul addresses this tough issue, from 12 to 16, he really shifts his focus to ethics. Um, and there's been some interesting work lately that's been done on this, like uh, Scott McKnight's Reading Romans Backwards. Mm -hmm. um, and you rightly emphasize here that the ethics section of this book is not some unrelated appendix to what's come before, but rather they're intricately connected. Um, so in what ways do chapters 12 through 16 illustrate the sort of dense theological ideas that precede it? Yeah, I think I might use a different word than ethics. I um, I, I want to say life together, it, just as a uh, because uh, ethics sounds first of all it sounds like principles, and it also sounds um, it, it can sound individualistic. Um, but I don't want to quibble about, about words necessarily. Um, what I guess to put it colloquially, what's the colloquially, what's the payoff of all this dense theology of Romans 1 to 11? And it's clear from verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, that what follows is building on these 11 chapters. And what is for, of consequence for Paul is that God's salvation is to create a community of um to use contemporary language, a multicultural community that embodies this gospel. And for the people in Rome in particular, it was uh, Jewish believers and Gentile believers and all of their diversities and you know, permutations and combinations, if you will, living together, embodying the gospel in their life together and therefore in their public life in the world. Um, so there's a missional uh, witnessing uh, dimension to this to this life, the way they treat their neighbors, the way they treat one another, is all spelled out there. How they live out their uh, existence in the context of the Roman Empire, of Roman values, uh, and and so doing, they embody the gospel and they bring to fulfillment the the hopes of the prophets that one day the nations would worship together with the people of Israel and worship the one God. Of course, it's been reconfigured, to use Tom Wright's language, in light of the um, gospel, in light of the Messiah and the Spirit. But yeah, it's a beautiful passage about life together. We are in the middle. You, Father Grayton was speaking about teaching Romans. My, um, my adult class, pre and post Lent this year, is uh, called Romans Potpourri. So in the, before Lent, we did themes in Romans, mostly in the first uh, eight chapters. And, and now we're going section by section in Romans 12 to 15 to look at the nitty gritty of life together. It's been really good. Uh, the first week was last week. I intended to spend one hour on Romans 12, one to eight. We spent one hour on Romans 12, one and two. I think everybody who's ever tried to teach a Bible study on Romans can relate to that. You know, you want to do it in a certain amount of weeks, but eventually you just can't keep up. I think we did ours. It took a very long time, uh, unfortunately. So, and and even then, you end up skipping things and saying, "Oh, we just don't have enough time to unpack that." 
there's an Episcopal priest in the diocese of, uh, of Maryland who, before he was an Episcopal priest, uh, you'll know him, uh, Father Wesley, uh, Jason Poling. He preached through Romans, I think, I'm not exaggerating, I think four years, preaching from beginning to end. There was a church where I grew up that it took them six years to do it. I mean, they broke for, you know, Christmas and Easter and those kind of things. But yeah. I think I think at a certain point you violate the Geneva Convention's uh, <laughs> standards for a humane treatment of prisoners. <laughs> so, yeah. Though not Father Polling. Father Polling is wonderful and great. So he can do whatever he wants. He's a good preacher. Well, Dr. Gorman. Um... Besides your own work and maybe um, N.T. Wright, uh, what would you say is, you know, some of the most important or exciting Pauline scholarship that's happening right now? Oh, my, there's a lot. Um, there, you know, there's so much to do with Paul. There's so many different approaches. There's so many different Ph.D. dissertations being written. But, you know, who are who are some of the important figures? Um, well, I think there's an interesting book called Paul, the New Covenant Jew um, by three Catholic scholars. I, I wrote the foreword to that. Um, I, I think that's a good description of, of who, what kind of Jew Paul was. So that's Michael Barber and Brent Petrie and, and John Kincaid. And uh, that's, those are people to watch. Michael Barber in, in particular, I think is the um, more of the Pauline and John Kincaid, well, I mean, all three of them. Uh, those are people to watch. Um, Nijay Gupta is a is a person to, to watch. I really like his work. His commentary on Colossians is top notch. His book on faith in Paul is important. He's always he's always uh, Nijay is always busy. He's always writing something. Uh, he's a good person to watch. Douglas Campbell, who's an old friend. He's never boring. Um, he's sometimes wrong, but he's always interesting and and provocative. Beverly Gaventa, I hope her commentary on Romans comes out sometime soon. Um, she's been working on that for a long, long time. Uh, the the theologic, for me at least, the, the theologically uh, oriented people who write on Romans are the most interesting. I, I care about uh, other approaches and uh, so forth. Resurrecting Justice, a book by Doug Herring, and the Canadian theologian is a really interesting reading of Romans. Um, so there's there's so much going on. I, I feel it's sort of like when the pastor says, I want to thank everybody who helped with the fellowship dinner. You start naming names, you say, oh no, I shouldn't do that because I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave people out. Um, I, I think I even jotted some names down. Now I can't remember who I jotted down. So it, there's there's just so, so much good work going on. Um, oh, Susan Eastman. I didn't mention Susan Eastman. Uh, she, like, like I, um, very uh, committed to the idea of participating in Christ, but she has a kind of interdisciplinary approach to that. So one of my former books, uh, Paul and the person, we had to read that yeah. for, um, for oh, class yeah. I was in and it was excellent. Great, a great book. Uh, so, yeah, let me stop there before I leave out more people I should mention. No, that's great. It's like it's like an Oscar speech, right? You know, you just have to keep. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's that's awesome, Dr. Roman. So somehow in an hour, we were able to actually get through all those questions. We made it through. Uh, of course, listeners, you should buy the commentary because there's so much more. I mean, we were drinking from a fire hose today, but um, but we managed to do it. We did it. Um, so as we end the show, we always do uh, something called what we're into. We just talk about one thing that we're into. It can be a movie, a TV show, music, an experience, whatever. Dr. Gorman, I think the last time you were here, you were into the West Wing. Um, wow. But what are, what are you into uh, these days? Foil's War. Do you know that? Mm -hmm. It's a British um, mystery detective story about a series. It, it ran a long time. But some of the series, some of the seasons are only short, four episodes or whatever. It's a World War II and post-World War II detective who um, is in uh, Hastings, England, and solving murders while 
always facing compromise, you know, the, the murderer happened to be an RAF, important RAF pilot. Do you prosecute him or you did let, do you let him go to fly off in the, in the war against Germany? So, I mean, it's, it's really, it's well done. It's very interesting. And the episodes are 90 minutes long. Uh, you can get it on, sometimes on PBS, but also on, um, uh, the series are on Acorn TV on Prime, Prime Video. So, yeah, sorry, long answer, short question. So I'm into Foil's War. My wife and I are. Very cool. How about Very you cool. guys? Father Creighton, what are you into? I will I will keep the theme with a television uh, show or a series. Um, so I've been watching uh, Lupin, which is a Netflix um, show. And it's... Um, I'm watching it so that I continue to bone up on my French and I can kind of yeah. keep keep hearing it. But that there are English dubs for it if you don't want to deal with like subtitles or anything like that. Um, but it's a French uh, series um, based on the sort of gentleman thief Arsene Lupin. And it's fantastic. I mean, it is 10 out of 10. Uh, I don't want to spoil anything, so I, I won't give you uh, any information about it. But set in the present day um in paris and it it is really fun it's exciting it's uh thrilling uh, my wife and i've been watching it so it's it's been a nice thing to to turn on after dinner and just enjoy it we we watched that too and we're hoping for a second season but i don't think there's going to be one i i know i'm maybe we should start a petition uh. We can we can bring all of the sacramentalist uh, you know, street cred to bear on this. Yeah, um, Father Wes, what are you into? Well, it's uh, hardly as highbrow as as either of those two. Uh, I am into playoff hockey, so uh, listeners know, and I think I do this once a year, pretty much. But uh, big Carolina Hurricanes fan. I grew up in Raleigh. Um, that's our only professional sports team there. Um, of course, you have to like Duke, UNC, or NC State if you live there for basketball and football and everything, but. Um, but the Hurricanes are our only professional sports team. So the playoffs are happening right now. Uh, we're playing the Boston Bruins. This is like the third year in a row that we've played the Bruins in the playoffs. And um, and so, uh, yeah, that's always exciting. It's tied two to two. We have a game tonight, best of seven series. Um, there's always fun storylines that come out. Um, we had uh, we had two really good goalies this season uh, who both got injured. And so we signed this 22-year-old Russian kid. He had to go live in an embassy for a week in Europe so that he could get a visa to come to the United States to play. Doesn't speak a word of English. And only played three games in the regular season, and we had to put him in uh, because the second goalie got hurt uh, in the second game, I think. And uh, he picked a fight. This new kid picked a fight with one of the league's uh, most uh, notorious kind of bad boys named Brad Marchand. So he he won the hearts of every Hurricanes fan immediately in doing that. So that's what I'm into these days is just uh, watching hockey, trying not to have a heart attack. Uh, I watch some of these games. So. Well, Dr. Gorman, thank you so much for joining us. Um, do you want to say a quick word about the, uh, the Certificate of Advanced Studies at St. Mary's? I think I saw that you're the person that kind of oversees sure. that, right? I'm always happy to talk about St. Mary's. So the 62nd version of this is uh, St. Mary's Seminary and University is the oldest Catholic seminary in the U.S. and the only one in the world with a, uh, an ecumenical division. And within that uh, division, there's a program called the Certificate of Advanced Studies, which is a postmaster's uh, way of, of kind of continuing your uh, ongoing uh, formation and, and theologically. Um, you can specialize in an area like New Testament or do a gen generic uh, thing. It's it's 10 courses, sometimes advanced standing is possible to reduce that to eight, and it can be done online or in person. So you can take a course with me in 1 Corinthians next fall, wherever you are in the world. If it's it's not asynchronous, it's it's synchronous uh, in, in real life. But um, yeah, so I'll, I'll be doing 1 Corinthians in the fall and um, would love to have some of your listeners uh, join us for that if they already have a degree. If they don't have a degree, they can still take the course and it would um, uh, count toward a ongoing life or toward a master's degree. So, yeah, that's Thank excellent. You. Yeah, St. Saint, Saint Mary's is a wonderful, wonderful school. 
Um, so definitely check that out, listeners, if you're uh, in the process of looking to to further your education in some ways. So, well, Dr. Worman, thanks again for joining us. It really was wonderful. And thank you for your commentary and the contribution it makes to the, to the church as a whole. It really is wonderful. Well, thank you for those kind words. I appreciate being with you again. Well, listeners, if you uh, if you like what we're doing, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to share us with your friends. You can always email us with feedback or show ideas at thesacramentalists at gmail.com. And to close us for today, I want to pray one of my favorite collects from the Book of Common Prayer, which is the collect for the second Sunday in Advent. Uh, let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.